Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm. It is mid-August. It is hot all over the East Coast, and I have two of my absolute besties here with me today to chat all about the world. I have Danny Crichton in New York wearing a collar. Danny, hello. I am always wearing a collar, and you're wearing nothing. I'm wearing a shirt. You are also this wearing a shirt. Everyone's lying right now. <laughs> <laughs> we also have Natasha Moscarinas here. Natasha, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Danny's voice is on the show. Yes. How much do we miss it? I missed it dearly. I did too. Danny, you can't go on vacation anymore because we miss you and it makes us very sad inside. The only reason I go on vacation is to try new ice cream places. And I tried what? Six, seven last week. Did you try the mango lassi flavor that Cynthia was talking about? I have had the mango lassi. What I was not able to find is the mac and cheese flavored Van Leeuwen, yeah. which is actually cross produced by uh, Kraft. Yeah. And I've been told it's memorable. Yeah. Memorable is a word for it. A bit like being punched in the face by a car bumper. All right. Before we get into the actual show, Natasha, you are back from uh, ASU plus GSV, the EdTech Summit. Just give us a quick flavor about that. We're curious about what the EdTech market's like down there. How much hype was there? Was there sadness about China? What'd you see? Yeah, it was really cool to one, meet readers and listeners in real life. That was crazy. It's like the first time I've ever gone to a, an event in person representing TechCrunch because I joined just like a year and a half ago. Right before COVID. Yeah. So it was it was meeting a lot of people for the first time ever that I feel like I knew. And someone just described it as like overly intimate. And I was like, it did feel that way. Like it just felt like I knew too much about the people that I was talking to. Um, but it was really nice to see how tech was really like growing into its new relevancy. Every person I talked to on stage was not a unicorn when I first talked to them and was then a unicorn on stage. So it was like this really cool moment of like, we probably wouldn't be here, none of us, if the pandemic didn't happen. So bullish sounds like overall. Bullish for sure. I think there was like definitely a reality that we shouldn't just move on from talking about how ed tech is going from offline to online to what's next. They're like the offline to online is still not figured out. Right. So there was like a lot of like, I think, humility that I was happy to see as well. And China was kind of the elephant in the room. There was no global attack this year, really, in terms of like members and audience members. So Well, harder to travel internationally when Delta is back in the world. <laughs> I'm just glad you got to go before everything closed. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a packed show. We are going to talk about a ransomware attack on a venture capitalist. We're going to riff on the Cloud 100. I put that in the show, unsurprisingly. We also have Surfside <laughs> Felt and Pave funding rounds. We have a couple of new unicorns to talk about. And then Danny is going to explain to us what IPCC stands for and also what is a rapid SOS. And we are going to close with the most important story of the week. Obviously, Salesforce getting into the streaming market. You can probably guess what we think about that. But Danny, uh, to kick things off, there has been a ransomware attack in the broader venture capital world involving a VC group that I'm not too familiar with, but has raised a lot of money to invest. So I'm sure you know who they are. Yes, yeah, so ATV, which in addition to making trucks, is also in the venture game. Uh, Advanced Technology Ventures, a $1.8 billion firm with AUM, actually had a ransomware attack. So 300 or so names from the LP base, including names, phone numbers, addresses, social security numbers, were taken. And it was what's known as, I guess, a double hack. So the, the ransomware both encrypted the data on their server and also stole a copy to try to get money extracted from the firm. It happened in July, and um, we only learned about it because one of the LPs is based in Maine, and Maine has disclosure laws. And so ah. when they disclosed to the Maine government, uh, we sort of found out that it had taken place. Maine is a state in the United States, if you weren't aware. It's a small one. It's on the upper north right bit of the country. And uh, it's famous for crabs. Really, that's about all I can say. It's kind of like Canada, but America. I don't know anything about Maine is what I discovered in this transition. <laughs> Danny, but the, the, re the, real, the real story here is we, we expect large buckets of money to have big walls built around them. And it just seems that in this case, cybersecurity may not have been a focus. And 
you were talking a little bit to us about how at a lot of firms that have a lot of AUM, cybersecurity isn't that big of a focus. How long can that last before everyone kind of gets their stuff together? I mean, theoretically, you can outsource this, but a lot of firms, I mean, they're small, right? And they start small. No one hires a CTO or CIO for a venture firm. And a CIO in this context is chief information officer, not chief investment officer. And so there's often very limited IT security. I mean, if you think about a firm that has 2 billion, you know, 1.8 billion under management, you'd think, God, that's a huge pile of money. There must be a lot of protection. There's oftentimes not, to be frank, like people use their own computers. Email is probably encrypted. You might have two-factor. You might be surprised how many firms do not have two-factor installed. And so I think, you know, these are huge gaping targets. I actually doubt that this is the first VC firm that's experienced a ransomware attack. It's just the first that's gone disclosed. Sequoia Capital, I think earlier this year, was hacked due to a phishing scam, so slightly different. But seeing something like Sequoia be a target Obvious for someone who's doing the attacking, but not a good look for a firm that has as much money, Danny, to your point. Well, and, and you know, obviously our parent company is Verizon, so we have an enormous amount of infrastructure around security. Our Paranoids team, they're literally called Paranoids. Um, you can imagine what they're like at a bar. But, you know, we see how much investment they have to make into security around here because we're under assault all the time. I can even imagine a firm that only has 10, 15, 20 people, none of whom are actually in IT. You know, the, the surface area is just so open for attack. Yeah. Famously, billionaires have very bad cybersecurity. I read an article about this the other month, and they were like, you know, you would be shocked how many billionaires don't have 2FA on their like investment accounts. And I was like, come on, try, try a little bit. Like, you know, that's, <laughs> it's un- unacceptable, I think. To me, this feels like a little ironic because a week before Zach broke this news, Zach Whitaker, our cybersecurity editor, there was a Twitter thread that was like, what is the, one of the few last things that has been considered secretive by the overall venture industry? And everyone was like, LP data is like the one thing that they're not giving us. I have other things, but that's like the general consensus. And then this attack happened. And so I think like going into like what this means for venture capitalists who are listening to the show and just like who saw the headline, they know that LP data is one of your competitive advantages. I feel like that will be a target. And also the the irony to me here is how many VCs are investing into cybersecurity companies and then (laughs) not having great cybersecurity themselves. This is a kind of modern, very first world problem version of the old joke that the cobbler's son has no shoes. In this case, the cybersecurity investor has uh, no 2FA. Let's move on to a place ripe for even more puns, which I think is the Cloud 100 list. That was everywhere this week, and I don't know (laughs) what to think about it and what to do with it. So Alex, walk us through the relevancy and walk us through why we're all paying attention to it. Okay, so the Cloud 100 is a list. Many publications do these. Danny made a TechCrunch list some time ago. It was full of names until he took it out back and uh, sent it to the farm upstate. <laughs> but the Cloud 100 is a list that still lives on. It is a detailed yearly update on the most valuable private companies in the cloud world. Forbes does it kind of in conjunction with Bessemer Venture Partners. So the reason why this particular Cloud 100 stood out to me is because it's a really good window into how much things have changed. And so if you think about the value of the companies on the list in 2020, it was $267 billion, about a quarter trillion dollars. It's a lot of money. This year, the 100 companies are worth $518 billion, a half trillion dollars. And that, to me, is a really good descriptor of what's gone on in the venture and startup world in the last year about how much money has flown into it, how valuations have stretched. It's kind of like the, the broader world in microcosm. And so just to kind of move us along here quickly, the average Cloud 100 valuation multiple grew from 9x ARR, or annual recurring revenue, in 2016 to 34x in 2021. And that jump in, in multiple is the valuation growth that we've seen really all across the private sector that every VC has been complaining about. The median ARR multiple is 27x, so a little bit lower than the average, as you would expect, given outliers. 
But oh my gosh, it's just so crazy to me to see how these assets have been repriced by private investors. The top 10, I'm sure most of the top companies in this list had raised a lot of capital. But on the other end, there's MailChimp, which also had news this week. Danny, do you want to run us through what happened? MailChimp, which is actually a bootstrap company, has never raised any venture, never raised any debt. It's rumored, according to Bloomberg, so this wasn't part of the Forbes reporting, this is the Bloomberg world. People at MailChimp linked to Bloomberg that MailChimp is going to sell or would like to sell potentially at a $10 billion price point. It's convenient that the company just sort of someone somewhere leaked this information to allow everyone to know that it's on the on the market to be sold. Yeah. But they were number 14 on the list and supposedly had several hundred million in ARR, a strong company, 20 years of bootstrapping. The founders own 100% of it. This is a particularly interesting one to watch because Clavio, which we had profiled in an EC1 and actually has been our most popular EC1 this year, actually is doing super well and supposedly is eating MailChimp's lunch. So like many of these Uh companies, I think there's a little bit of this maturity cycle where, okay, we've reached the end of our growth cycle. People are coming up behind us. Let's sell to P and and sort of cash out. So it'll be very interesting to watch MailChimp and the Clavio breakdown. Clavio, for what it's worth, is also valued at $9.5 billion. So the young up-and-coming SaaS company, eight years old, I think it's 2012, so it's about eight, nine years old, worth the same as the 20-year-old company. Very interesting to watch. You know, I, uh, I've i also heard some rumors about TechCrunch.com, a leading digital publication in the startup space. I'm not going to name my sources, but I'll just say it was uh, Kenny Dryton and Matasha Nascarenas <laughs> who said that TechCrunch is also pursuing a, a sale, spin-out even, <laughs> uh, at a roughly $15 billion valuation. So one more to keep Take an eye that. on. Yeah, Mail take that MailChimp. So uh, we've been talking about clouds. And if you listen to that, you realize that some people are smoking clouds over here going on in the podcast. So uh, I want to pivot us over to cannabis because this week we had a ton of news from the cannabis space, a space that I keep track of religiously. I know everything going on. I know how to smoke the dope, kick the weed, drop the acid. I, I don't think that that's the same drug. No, that's not the same drug. Definitely um, not the same thing. Anyway, the first company we want to talk about, Surfside which is not in San Diego, despite the fact that Natasha was this there. It's actually a marketing tech company for cannabis. Inhaled, according to our own headline, $4 million, led by Casa Verde. Karen Wadhira, managing partner there, will join the board. They're a data marketing platform for cannabis. And what I didn't realize, and it makes sense, is like you can't actually advertise using traditional channels. You can't advertise on Facebook. You can't advertise on Google. Because cannabis is still illegal at the federal level, a lot of traditional marketing channels are gone. They can't track their customers. You can't build profiles. And so Surfside is meant to fill in the gaps there and build marketing for a drug that, Alex, I think, as you pointed out, hasn't needed a lot of marketing over the years to figure this stuff out. That's the thing about drugs. No one's ever been like, oh, you know, how am I going to sell all this cannabis? Oh, no, I've got so much. Like, ever been to a dispensary? Like, the, the line's out the door. You know, all they do is put up a sign that says, do you want some drugs? And a little arrow. And then everyone's like, yeah, turn right. No, but I mean, I think one of the first things I noticed when I moved to San Francisco was the billboards put up by Ease all over the city. And I actually wrote a piece about all these billboards and why they were coming up. And when I talked to Ease, they said exactly what you guys are talking about, which was like regulatory challenges and traditional channels. It's so interesting to see, I guess, two years going from Ease just putting up a billboard to venture capitalists being so confident they're going to put money into a company that's going to help these companies with marketing. I mean, that just suggests a massive shift. I will say I was really surprised because they are building customer profiles. They're actually tracking customers, their addresses, where they're buying, what kind of brands they like. And I was reading this and I was like, what a statement of long-term belief that the law is going to change. Because this is still illegal. 100%. I mean, at the state level, in many states, the laws are changing, but it's still illegal at the federal level. And here's this beautiful data source that's like, here's the list of everyone buying these drugs. 
what they're interested in, how often they buy it, whether they get discounts, <laughs> what rewards they want. If you get marijuana points or something, I don't know, uh, MJ points. I love how Danny sounds slightly like a parent in the 70s. He really does. I you was know, like, why do I feel like <laughs> I'm look, like, like, ashamed? Right are you smoking the marijuana? <laughs> Bad joke. But like when you bring marketing and dispensaries together, it's an amazing joint venture. Ayo. All right. Look, there we'll, we go. We'll, we'll allow that. But like, okay, I'm going to be slightly more disclosive than I should be. But like the dispensary that I go to in Massachusetts, I'm sure knows stuff about me. That's fine. I don't care. Like, I, I, I feel like there's two Americas in this case. There's the, the America that has realized that cannabis is misscheduled in the federal list of drugs. And then there's the reactionary Neanderthals who are not. And if you live in the latter half, this is a very strange conversation. But to me, it, it's this company makes a lot of sense, and I can see a huge market for its product. Anyways, let's move along and talk about something a little bit more in our general wheelhouse, which is PAVE, Natasha, a YC-backed company that is working on comp. Now, we all know that the startup talent market, the technology talent market, super competitive. Figuring out what to pay people and how to pay people more equitably is a, is a huge topic. So I presume that's why PAVE has put together an enormous round. Totally. I mean, PAVE was a YC gem a batch and a half ago. They raised before Demo Day $75 million valuation from Andreessen. And we're seeing them do it again. This time it's led by YC Continuity Fund. They raised a $46 million Series B and are now valued at $400 million. To what you're saying, Alex, they're in a space that a lot of people are rethinking right now, which is how to compensate an engineer who went from San Francisco to Denver and how do we change that, if at all. It also obviously intersects with a lot of like these inequity issues in the gender wage gap right now. So PAVE is trying to create like a benchmarking system and really has brought on YC and a lot of its investors as its first funnels of customers. They're taking those portfolio companies and trying to grow that way. Yeah. Selling, you know, YC companies, selling to YC companies is an old adage because it's a great way for these companies to get early customers, early revenue and learn a lot. So not surprised to hear that, but with 900 customers, only a third of which are from YC, they've obviously found a, a pretty wide market for this. But can you tell us a little bit about how PAVE uses data? Because to me, this was the most interesting part of the story. They have three services. First, they have like a top of funnel, which anyone can access starting now, where they can see how different companies anonymously pay their employees. And in that way, you can start to benchmark people by location and job role. After companies get that experience, that's when they start trying to get you to pay for it. So they'll offer to integrate with your HR tools like Workday, Carta, Greenhouse, kind of start giving the company a picture on how employees are being compensated. And then when it comes time for things like promotion cycles and salary bumps, which maybe the managing editor in the room knows is a really shitty process, they start to help make that a more seamless and communicative and less spreadsheety process is kind of like the TLDR. So a lot of data that matters. And one thing I'd love to see them do is start to have equity as a bigger focus, but it is something that they're asking employees to disclose. Natasha, do you think that PAVE is going to actually be able to tackle the gender wage gap? Because I, I was looking through their PAVE data lab website, which is a great marketing move by them, by the way, by releasing data that people can kind of consume and share. And they were talking about the inequity, I, I think it was with women in engineering. So is this just a step towards a more equitable future or is it going to be kind of a revolution? How do you feel? It's weird because I don't know if PAVE is going to be able to chart its own success. A lot of it will come down to the transparency of its own customers. As the CEO was telling me, because they can't really force people to disclose gender and race data, it all has to be self-reported. And that means it has to be a choice from them. That said, something really cool happened, which was when I asked PAVE during their Series A for their diversity breakdown, they declined to share. And when I asked them this time, they did share. And so I feel like I'll give myself a pat on the back for asking, but I'll also like kudos to them for sharing some information about it. 
I think like they really do need to be loud about it in order to make it more of a thing. Leading by example here, I think, is the way forward. Yeah, totally. But let's put it this way. If you need to pave a path, you need a map. And in order to have a map, you should have software that allows you to build maps. And I want to move this along from pave to felt, which is a terrible name for a mapping company, in my opinion. But Natasha, you wrote an amazing story about a company that's trying to make it easier and more democratized to build maps. I love the name felt. What is your problem with the name felt? No map is made with felt. A felt tip. Who uses a felt tip marker on a map? Alex, please share your thoughts before I introduce the subject. Uh, Donald Trump. (laughs) Also, felt, critically, is a hip-hop duo. It's MERS and then Slug from Atmosphere, the famous Midwest hip-hop duo. And they put out a couple of records. So if you're into hip-hop, check out felt. Okay, anyway, <laughs> Felt raised $4.5 million this week, led by Bain Capital and with Designer Fund, CEO of Figma, COO of Notion, etc. And their whole goal is to, as we alluded to, trying to make maps a more mainstream way of people and mostly companies expressing themselves and sharing data. Their pitch was basically like, we're at a time where maps really matter for climate change, whether it's fire trackers, They matter within vaccine distribution sites. They matter in a lot of different ways. And there's no great way to do it beyond like a really surface level amount. And so they're basically trying to create a software layer that lets anyone start building a map, integrate data sets into it and get to a place where someone like I could create a wildfire map, integrate it with census data, circle it and say, this is how many people will be impacted by that fire tomorrow. Right. No, this is this is a great idea. I mean, this reminds me of like the early mashup days. If you go back to when Mashable, the publication was in its infancy, it was designed to cover mashups. And this was a thing back in like the web 2.0 era. People would take two data sets, smush them together and come up with something kind of new and neat. It was great. It was a lot of fun. Letting people combine data and maps in an easy fashion is fantastic because maps are incredibly useful ways to show information in ways that people can consume. And also they're hard to do on your own. Back in our Crunchbase news days, Natasha, we did some maps of the US with some data on them essentially by hand. And it was incredibly awful. It was time consuming and finicky and hard to get right. So this is really cool. Just want to give a final shout out to one of the co-founders, John Dirk, who is a co-writer on The Margins, which is a fantastic newsletter that we really, really like and enjoy. And if you haven't read it, you should. The other co-founder, Sam Hashimi, he was the founder of Remix, which was recently bought by Via for $100 million. Remix was doing mapping software specifically in the transportation city planning world. This is his follow-up because he described Remix as kind of going deep and specific on something he knew would work. Felt is more of a gamble. It's going to be for any industry, and they're really opening it up to private beta today. Danny, I really do want your thoughts on this company, though. When you heard mapping software, were you like, makes sense? Or did it feel like, why are people thinking about this of all things right now? No, I've been doing a lot of work on JS and and mapping software because climate change, disaster response, emergency management, all is obviously built around maps. I mean, you got to know where things are happening. In fact, some of the layers that they talked about in your story were around the smoke and, and wildfires in California, Oregon, et cetera. It, it's interesting, right? Because GIS is one of these fields that actually is quite professional. Like most people have master's degrees in this, in geographical information systems. Esri, which is a 40, 50-year-old company, is the big honcho in that space. And I've talked to some folks at Esri over the last couple of months. Like no one's been able to display some of the incumbents because it is really technical. You get into depending on the resolution and the depth of you know specificity you need, the curvature of the earth becomes a really important criteria. Like a lot of physics totally. show up. I've actually talked to a lot of folks doing flood mapping as an example, because that's a huge topic. Ah. Flood mapping is really hard because you have to know water physics. You'd have to know the contours of geographies and it changes all the time. So it's one thing to say, okay, San Francisco is roughly here and it's going to be okay if we're off by a couple meters. It's another thing when you're laying fiber lines or building a subway Getting off by a centimeter can be the difference between a skyscraper knocking over and King Kong showing up and and actually having a second avenue subway. 
So I actually think it's really interesting. I think it's great to democratize it. And it'll be exciting to see some of the plans because one of the things that came out of COVID was people mapping, you know, more popularly on GitHub and other tools. Be amazing to see something more useful and well-designed for this project right here. And I'm just happy it's not another note-taking startup, no shade, but it was cool to see someone Mm -hmm. thinking about a medium other Mm -hmm. than notes. But let's move on to, I think, a series of firsts for Turkey and SoftBank. Alex, there was some unicorn news. Not even just unicorn news, decacorn news even. I mean, my gosh. So uh, the headline out here is that Turkey has its first decacorn. And if you don't know what that means, it means a company, a private company, a startup really worth $10 billion. Not just one, but 10. And in this case, it's Trindyol, which I'm going to guess is close to correct. T-R-E-N-D-Y-O-L, a Turkish e-commerce company. They just raised $1.5 billion at a 16.5 billion dollar valuation money from general atlantic vision fund 2 and some sovereign wealth funds i mean like it, it's a lot of money it comes from a lot of different sources usually with rounds are this big and this is also softbank's first investment into turkey so showing up a little bit late to this one but good to see the vision fund 2 take a look at the market and basically trendial if you will is an e-commerce platform that has a couple different things. It has an express product that does delivery. It has a Go product that does kind of couriers. It has pay, so it's in the fintech space. It also has Dolop, which is kind of a way for consumers to sell to one another. So it does quite a lot of things. It's 11 years old and it was founded by Demma Susan Mutlu. And really, I'm just super impressed by this company. Last year, it was only worth $9.4 billion, Now, $16.5. Natasha, an amazing amount of value creation in a very short amount of time. I'm wondering if you've found a company that you can compare it to and if their valuation is still impressive. Because I know you've covered a lot of companies, a lot of super apps, if I can say that, that have gone to the public markets and had their own sorts of receptions. <laughs> so well, how it, are you kind of placing this in the context? It's really interesting because super apps are hard to compare because they're so broad. And so like when we think about super apps, you know, Danny, in the, in the Asian sense, we think about like food delivery, ride hailing, payments. This is more almost like e-commerce infra and consumer payments and kind of consumer to consumer sales. And so Natasha, it's a really great question and a way to frame the market. But my struggle is, I don't know if there's enough of like a a direct lineup to do a good job with that. And so, you know, and I I would also just say that $16.5 billion is sufficiently large that it kind of just stands on its on its own. You almost don't want to put it into like, well, you know, line is worth a hundred billion or whatever. It's just an impressive result. But I mean, it's a blend of Amazon and Venmo and some other stuff. I mean, it's kind of this, this weird mix of stuff, which is why it's so cool to see it in Turkey. Because, you know, I mean, when I think about Turkey, I think about creeping authoritarianism and government instability and uh, palaces that were built for no reason. I don't think decacorns, and so I'm glad to have my thinking changed here by this. I think there's a couple of good comparisons. I think Jumia in Africa is is an interesting comparison where you're dealing with logistics and finance. Grab, I think, also applies. I mean, Grab obviously started ride-hailing, and that's how a lot of the Southeast Asian companies, the super apps today, got started. But, you know, there are these sort of core economic layers that you need. You need logistics and the ability to pay online. A lot of countries didn't have either. And I think this is a great example in Turkey. It's both, right? It has a a last mile delivery network, which ironically, Amazon doesn't even have really in the United States, although they just opened up Amazon Air in Kentucky this week, which was a multi-billion dollar facility. So like Amazon's clearly getting into that world. But, you know, why did it take so long? Because there was a logistics network. You had DHL, you had FedEx, you had UPS. You didn't have to build this out in Turkey. And as with a lot of countries, you needed to do that. Second, another comparison is Coupon. Coupon actually did do logistics, less on finance, although I think it also has gotten a lot better over time. But the logistics was actually quite bad. You know, deliveries, despite the fact they were the same city, took three to four to five days with traditional re- online retailers. And Coupon was the first one to say, why can't we just do it overnight? Like, we should be able to do this from factories and from distribution centers right outside the city. So I think there's a lot of comparisons. Completely unsurprising to me that Alibaba 
and SoftBank, you know, keep redoing the same investment in every single country, right? They go into China, they're in Southeast Asia, they're in Africa, they're in Turkey now. I think they're also in Latin America and similar companies like this. It's the same playbook. Yeah. And yes, they're a little bit different. They offer a little bit different features. That's very geographical focus based on what's existing in the market there. But it's a really durable strategy and we know the logistics work. I, I want to say the Jumia point is, is really good. Jumia just reported earnings the other day. I think it was actually yesterday. They just have a history of operating losses, frankly, that are pretty, pretty big because it's very expensive to build this stuff out. If you're trying to build e-commerce infra for a large geographic area, Africa in the case of Jumia, Turkey in the case of Trindial, it takes a lot of capital. So that's why the $1.5 billion raise makes a lot of sense. But let's move back to India and EdTech. Natasha, this is your jam. We need to talk about Upgrad. And to me, seeing this company raise the money that it did at the price that it did in the wake of the Chinese EdTech brouhaha, if you will, is kind of like a, an extra nail in the in, in the coffin of that particular story. Yeah, in some ways, it's kind of boring, right? It's like we expected this <laughs> at minimum. This was another thing that came up during ASU GSV, which was like all the chill that is in China right now. The heat is going to India. A lot of new funds are genuinely just trying to strategically figure out how do we invest in India and how do we compete with bigger firms like Tiger Global and SoftBank in India. So Upgrad this week, they became the latest EdTech India unicorn. They raised $185 million at a $1.2 billion valuation. They do a lot of upskilling courses that would help students in higher ed, such as like data science, machine learning. And they work with a lot of the big universities there. So IIT is the Harvard, actually much harder than Harvard, which they like to remind you if you know anyone from IIT there. And so they got them on board, which is, I think, a huge sign. And they have over 100 million users. So we're seeing a lot of growth, and I think it makes a lot of sense as universities try and figure out how the heck to stay digital. One thing to keep in mind about this is the the round was actually raising kind of two chunks. So the $120 million round at a $600 million valuation, and then the rest of it, the other $65 million was raised at a $1.2 billion valuation. So the valuation doubled since April, and either it's now too expensive or it was dramatically underpriced before, but it's fascinating to see this round kind of have two such different valuation points. But I, that probably just goes to show how much growth there is in the market, Natasha. I mean, 100 million students or users, I should say, is just an enormous chunk of, of, of active usership. And given that these courses are not particularly cheap in the last six months to two years, it's a pretty big commit. Totally. I mean, Baiju's is the most valuable company in India. I believe the most valuable edtech company in the world. And so India has obviously proved that there's like this massive innovation and talent that's there. And I love to see companies still raising and doubling down, even with that kind of behemoth in the room. Baiju's acquired a company recently, and that's in the higher ed space. So it's made its first foray into higher ed as well. We'll put ed tech to the side and we will get into disaster tech, another one of our co-hosts' favorite areas. Danny, this week we got a report on climate change. Do people care? And should they care, actually, more importantly? Uh, they don't care, but they should. <laughs> that's sort of the definition of climate change. I think that's like 40 years of climate change politics and history. Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change did release its working group report on the physics of climate change. This is part of the sixth assessment cycle. Blah, blah. Every eight years, they have a new report. This is the next big one. And it showed that um, a lot of bad news is coming. Things are accelerating. We're hitting tipping points. We now increasingly are reaching a point where we cannot undo the damage to the planet, that the planet's going to continue to warm, basically regardless of what we do. We could get rid of humanity and we'd continue to, to warm up. And so that leads to a big question of, you know, obviously there's a lot more money going into climate change, technology startups, a lot of money in the ESG, the environmental social governance investment category is investing heavily here. But one of the things I want to focus on is 
how important it is to create technologies to improve disaster response. We obviously did a special show on this just a couple of weeks ago. The report just doubled down on the fact that we're going to have more hurricanes. They're going to be more intense. We're going to have more droughts. We're going to have more wildfires. We're going to have more earthquakes. We're going to have more of basically everything, and they're going to be more intense. The ranges obviously go all over the place, but tens of millions of people a year are going to have to migrate in order to survive climate change year after year after year. And that just means we need a lot more technology. So we've seen companies like Gridware trying to increase resilience in the power grid. Quake, that's Q-W-A-K-E, which is trying to help firefighters see through smoke using virtual reality lasers and a bunch of other cool technology. Oh, yeah, that's cool. And then obviously Rapid SOS, which we wrote, and by we, I mean me, wrote an EC1 right before I went on vacation, which is focused on improving the data going into uh, emergency calls. So when you dial into 911, getting your location, your health data into the hands of dispatchers so they can actually know what they're doing and send the right help. Huge company making a lot of money and actually is a perfect example of there's real money here. Like they've raised 200 million bucks. It's a couple hundred million in valuation. Real money can be made doing this stuff. Okay. So Danny, I just got to say, When I was reading through it and I learned about how the U.S. 911 market is is actually put together and how it's run by small, local, distributed groups that have varying levels of funding and expertise, I I was angry because it seemed like inequitable and stupid and unnecessarily fragmented and an insufficient level of, uh, I don't know, uh, of, of technology and cohesion for the scale of this need, especially in a rising disaster environment, like I was kind of pissed. Like many things in America, we were one of the first to introduce sort of a a universal number system. And so back, you know, 50 years ago, at the late end of the Johnson administration, when 911 was chosen as the number, the reality was it was not a nationalized system, right? You, You were local, you were in your city, very few people traveled who needed this. Today, it's obviously very different. Unfortunately, the infrastructure bill that passed through the Senate this week actually did not include next generation 911 funding. So 911 will still be voice activated. It still is not IP driven. It's still not based on data. Believe it or not, people actually still make phone calls from 911 center to 911 center to actually transmit information. So a lot of modernization here. And and that's sort of always been the problem in this space is people just don't care. You know, who calls 911? Well, you only call it once or twice in your lifetime, hopefully. And uh, obviously it has to work when it does, but no one thinks about it on a day-to-day basis. So it's hard to get attention and money and funding for a lot of cash-strapped agencies. And worse, this is actually something that comes up quite often, is I think people assume that it's better than it actually is. Yes, that was me. You know, it's like the New York City subway system when it collapsed a couple of years ago, and people were like, wait, the signaling systems are actually 100 years old, and there's actually still, like, (laughs) vacuum tube computers from the 1930s, like, literally, which actually still operate the system if you're on the AC, BDFM lines. There's still vacuum tube computers that are, like, They literally pull the vacuum tube plugs in order to move the tracks in order to get the trains to go where they need to go. It's absurd. And I think more people just need to understand it's like, actually, yes, it is that ancient and it needs funding to move forward. But that leads us to the innovation of the century, really, because instead of investing in things like climate change or subways or anything that might actually do stuff, what we need is better content. (laughs) And, you know, there's no one who can get us better content than the Dreamforce people behind Salesforce. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you have realized that you are not paying for enough streaming services and you need a new streaming service in your life, well, we have one for you and it's free. It's coming to you soon. It's called Salesforce Plus, and it is going to take the magic of Dreamforce and make it year round, which if you live in San Francisco, sounds like a threat. Uh, <laughs> Dreamforce, if you don't know, is a, was, I guess, a yearly confab that uh, Salesforce would put on. And it, essentially, it always felt like Salesforce trying to show San Francisco how important they were because it seemed like every single restaurant and bar was booked out by someone. 
And so you would like try to go out for a drink with your friends and you go to a bar and then we closed, you know, private event. And then it happened like six restaurants in a row. It was terrible. Then COVID happened, you know, Dreamforce kind of went online and now they're going to take this and uh, build a editorially driven streaming product that will include Dreamforce stuff, but also guys, you know, it's going to be businessy content and so forth. And to me, this sounds a little bit like if your LinkedIn feed came to life in video form. They're literally trying to separate it out into different channels. Alex, I think you're spot on with the comparison and just running it through for people who didn't read it yet. There's going to be a prime time for news and announcements, trailblazer for training content, customer 360 for success stories, and industry channels for industry-specific offerings. And so my question is, who wants to watch that? And who wants to open up a platform just to access that other than the companies paying for their advertising? So we mock, we laugh, we giggle, but... People went to Dreamforce, a lot of them. They had run out like cruise ships to like house everybody during the Dreamforce, you know, week. And so even though we are snarky little jerks, maybe there is a big market for this and we're just not in the demo. Look, Dreamforce serves a very specific function. It is the way to you extract travel and entertainment funds from your parent company to go, I need to learn about Salesforce because it's an important product and we spend a lot of money on it for eight days in San Francisco. And then you just party it up yep. eight days straight and say how much you learned about Salesforce. So much. I have no idea how you create the equivalent magic with Salesforce Plus. Like, are they going to send free wine? If you if you watch every third program you watch, you just get like a shot of something. Maybe it works. Put a bottle of Tito's in the freezer. And every time a five minute increment passes in the video you're watching, <laughs> yeah, just take a shot. Exactly. And Easy. ladies and gentlemen, Dreamforce. Natasha, to, to me, this is easy to make fun of and whimsical, but I, I think your question about who it's for is is the right one. Because I can see there being a market for news and announcements. People do care about Salesforce. It's an enormous company with market imprint. Trailblazer training content. I think, you know, Lesson Lee and LinkedIn Learning have shown that there is a market for that. Industry channels, I can kind of see. If you're in Industry X, want to know how to do Y, sure. Success stories, though, who's going to, that just feels like advertorial, you know, like who wants that? This is such a reaction to companies not knowing where to place their own content marketing right now. It doesn't look good in TikTok. It doesn't look good really in a lot of like the channels that younger populations are looking at. That's to me is the response. And I'm for what it's worth, like if it works, we're going to see a lot more of it. And so I do want at some point to get an understanding and get some data around why so many people have confidence around it. Yeah. And maybe it's because they've done it with Dreamforce, Alex, but it would be great to see like actually why other than it sounds good. You know what we should do? We should do TechCrunch Plus. That'd be fun. That would be crazy. That'd be a bop. We, we have <laughs> yeah. that. It's called Extra Crunch and you can subscribe using the equity code. Well, what people don't know is back in the day, there was TechCrunch TV. There was an early effort back in the Felicia and John Orland days of trying to create enough video content to have kind of like a round the clock streaming effort. That went the way of the crunch pad, sadly. And now we don't do as much video as we used to because we're all at home. But I don't think this is the last thing we're going to see along these lines. So Salesforce Plus is a trailblazer. And we'll leave it there. Bye.